I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good afternoon and greetings from the hill country of Central Texas. I'm Amos Fox, and this is Revolution in Military Affairs. On today's episode, we have Franz Stefan Gotti, who previously has worked as a senior fellow at IISS in London, as well as the Center for New American Security, among many other uh, well-known think tank establishments across the world. Franz also is a, a significant contributor to the discourse uh, on on the Russia-Ukraine conflict as well as military theory uh, in general. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have him on today and a, a distinct honor to be able to talk to him. So without further ado, we'll get started here with Franz Stefan Getty. All right, so good afternoon, everybody, and if you're in uh, Berlin, like our guest here today, good evening. So good afternoon. Today we've got Franz Stefan Gotti uh, as our guest. Uh, he's quite prolific uh, in terms of covering uh, the Russian uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and just the, the conflict in general. So extreme pleasure to uh, have you on today, Franz. Uh, thank you very much, Amos. All right. So I know you got back uh, about a week ago from uh, another trip to Ukraine. So if you would just uh, uh, give us some uh, broad observations and some things that you've learned on this trip and uh, an update on the status of the war in general. Well, I think, first of all, um, I think it's important to understand that despite what has been happening over the last, uh, well, almost now two years in the country, the morale among the frontline troops and um the armed forces in general remains quite high. Um, having said that, uh, it's visible, the exhaustion of this uh, ongoing war of attrition, Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine, um, it is seriously taking its toll on these men who are um, holding um, the front line, who are uh, have been engaged for the last couple of months in this 
counteroffensive, and um, it is it is really very much so that that you can see the war in the, in the eyes of these soldiers. Exha- people are exhausted; um, their spirits are high. But um, it's certainly the case that um, losses have also been uh, quite quite substantial, I would say, um, among certain units uh, of the Ukrainian armed forces. And um, this obviously um, has also um, caused certain adaptations. Uh, We have been to Ukraine the last time in July, and we could definitely see certain changes on on the battlefield um, as a result of you know, not making as much progress as as the Ukrainians hoped it would make, and 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 so it was quite interesting. For example, the role of um, FPV first person view drones that were that were very much less so the case um, during our visit in July, and now they are really, to some degree at least, dictating the the operational pace of of uh, on the battlefield. So so that was that was quite interesting. So I guess the bottom line is. Uh, you know, my observations can essentially be summed up in morale remains high. The troops show visible signs of exhaustion. And um, it is fair to say that the counteroffensive has culminated a couple of uh, weeks ago, but fighting continues. Um, the Ukrainians are still on the attack, but um, the question is um, how long can they really uh, continue their assaults and at what point does it make sense that they actually switch to a more defensive posture down the road? Yeah, what's the so what do you think Russia at this point is fighting for? In my, in my assessment of the situation, it seems that Russia has uh, essentially obtained their what I would call their minimally acceptable outcome, which is yeah, a stranglehold there on the Donbass that they've had since you know the end of 2014 at the Battle of Debaltseva, and then they've obtained the 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 coveted land bridge to Crimea that I think that they were really really hoping to get back in that 2014-15 time period, but never came around. And then also they've got uh, Crimea. So, like in my assessment of the situation, Russia seems fairly satisfied with their position. Like they didn't get they didn't get Kiev, they didn't get Kharkiv. Uh, they, they've had to write that off. I don't think they're ever intending to go anything further uh, west of uh, Kiev to begin with. Uh, and so to me, like I said, in my, in my assessment, they've got the Donbass, they've got the land bridge, they've got Crimea. Do you, do, you, do you have a different read on Russia's goals? I think they're just fighting for time at this point to, to continue to just exhaust Ukraine and the international community uh, to where they won't, uh, till they run out of... Uh, the, the willingness to uh, keep fighting. So um, I've rambled enough on that question. So your thoughts, please. Thanks. Um, well, I think I have a slightly different interpretation. Uh, I do think that, as you rightly put it, um, the Russians are indeed playing for time. They think they can outlast the Ukrainians and their Western supporters uh, and partners. But having said that, I do think that their minimal um, territorial objectives uh, remain the borders of Donetsk and uh, Luhansk oblasts. Mm. And I do think we will see uh, renewed offensive uh, activities uh, to accomplish these objectives. In the long run, I don't think that Vladimir Putin has really given up his design to 
de facto control that doesn't really mean that they have to have physical a physical troop presence in place uh, in the entire country, but still at least um, exercise um, control over large chunks of Ukraine down the road. Um, I don't think he has really deviated from that objective, in my opinion. But uh, imme- you know, an immediate goal over the next um, year or longer is certainly to, to um, get to the borders of these oblasts. Um, and that, I think, um, is something that they will actively try to pursue over the, over the next couple of months. Yeah, that makes sense. The uh, I think that that's something that 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 nuance there and what you're saying is something that's overlooked when we talk about the Donbass. A lot of folks, when they think about that, they don't realize that when you say the Donbass and the territory that Russia controls, that is not the entirety of both those two uh, oblasts there in Luhansk and, and Donetsk. Uh, you mentioned a war of attrition. Um, that's you know like a taboo uh, phrase that you're not allowed to say. So um, we may have to uh, expunge that line from this podcast. However, uh, would you like to uh, elaborate <laughs> a bit more on that and what that means and how that meshes with uh, you know if, if couple months back, the U.S.'s push uh, to make Ukraine fight more in a maneuverist Western, and I'm using air quotes here, Western fashion. Well, I think that's an interesting question. And I think, first of all, um, and as you know, um, I have written quite extensively on uh, the debate surrounding uh, an attritional versus a more maneuver-based approach to warfare as have you mm-hmm. um obviously but i think um the longer i the more time i spend on 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 this subject the more i really think it's ultimately about outcomes right mm-hmm. and not so much about the mode of warfare or the specific mode of warfare first of all every single conflict um and ukraine is a great example is o- always go through different phases right oh, yeah. there's a more attritional phase and a more maneuver centric or maneuver-based phase. Now, I think what a lot of people get wrong, and perhaps it's really just laymen and not so much the experts, but correct me if I'm wrong, is they sort of equate, um, you know, maneuver warfare. And now I use air quotes because I know it has a very specific meaning. Let's say like a, 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 a maneuver, a more maneuverist approach, right, mm-hmm. um, to warfare with. Um, less casualties, less loss of uh, men and material in general, mm-hmm. and just j- basically a smarter way of fighting, right? Yep. Uh, whether it's an indirect approach, I mean, maneuverist approaches can actually be direct approaches that don't necessarily have to be indirect approaches. Um, but um, at the same time, an attritional approach is usually seen as, as something that is done as sort of a secondary choice, right? When you have no other options, um, you know, you pursue a maneuverist approach against, um, and usually you're also the one, um, you know, excuse me, mm-hmm. and usually you're also also the, the one with superior resources, so you can uh, bring to bear superior numbers on the battlefield and, and really just, um, I like that saying, and I'm not sure whether it's really true, but I read it somewhere that uh, the United States Army, for example, um, doesn't solve problems, it overwhelms them. <laughs> Um, yeah. I, I read that somewhere. I don't know whether it's actually, uh, you know, true yeah. or not. But I guess this this ba- this basic approach. Although obviously the U.S. Army, in my opinion at least, is a very maneuverist uh, uh, centric force in many many ways. Perhaps it 
was less the case during the Second World War when I think this phrase was was coined yeah. by by some uh, American officer. But in any case, so I think um, you know ultimately um, you have to you know you have these two opposing poles that in many ways shouldn't really be uh, you know in opposition to one another. And it's much more about the outcomes at the end, right? That is, if you fail in your approach, more often than not, um, you may be considered of having pursued a more attritional approach to warfare. And um, at the same time, um, if you have um, a good outcome or uh, successful fairly quickly, by and large, people try to interpret some sort of maneuverist ideas into this. Um, if you think about the fall of Kabul, right, in uh, 2021, or um, the uh, uh, Kharkiv offensive in Ukraine in um, uh, 20. 22 or even um the kherson offensive uh in in ukraine in uh, also in uh, in the fall of and, and late summer of 2022 so i think um the, the issue here is really the outcome right mm -hmm. whereas if you look carefully um at kherson and um kharkiv um, they were quite distinct in in in, in many ways right yeah. and uh, Kurzon actually had a much more attritional based approach than um Kharkiv and I think people sometimes conflate these two and I had arguments people arguing well you know the Ukrainians were pursuing an indirect approach <laughs> a maneuverist approach and when it came to Kurzon never mentioning um that actually attrition set the conditions in yeah. both cases um for for a more um maneuver centric or um in german we would call it call it a bewegungskrieg right yeah. for uh, <clears throat> a movement warfare literally translated right and i think um this to me really uh, is unfortunate because i do think it influences uh doctrinal debate negatively it influences force structure negatively oh, right. and it also um um negatively influences our acquisition strategies right mm -hmm. and by we are really not only mean the united states i really mean nato and western style militaries for the lack of a better word um in general and i think my issue is very often as i stand that it's ultimately much more about outcomes outcomes and then we try to piece together however the campaign unfolded in retrospect but if you look at it and if you look at the historical record in general uh, first of all maneuver uh, warfare again air quotes here mm -hmm. um is usually much more bloodier and has a tendency to attrit your forces much quicker than a classic attritional approach fire-centric attritional approach um think of the first weeks of the first world war um on the western front but you know whenever i go to uh, ukraine i often pass through uh, the polish town of chemischel um in uh, eastern poland which is bordering uh, western ukraine mm -hmm. a couple of kilometers off the ukrainian polish border and uh chemischel was the most imminent and important fortress town in um the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and uh, in 1914 and 1915, two two extremely um, bloody campaigns were fought over uh, the fortress town of Chemischl between the Austro-Hungarians and the Russians, and it was actually the longest siege of the Second World War as well, um, the Russian siege of Chemischl. And the two campaigns um, um, leading up to the siege of Chemischl were um, by some considered to be 
one, if not the bloodiest campaigns of the First World War that very little people, uh, very few people have actually heard much about. Um, and so it was primarily driven, though, by maneuver. I mean, by September or October of 1914, the Austro-Hungarian army essentially ceased to, um, in its existence, right? Mm -hmm. From then, that moment on, it was just um, a militia, essentially, that continued to fight the war for four more years, which is not unusual, right? Yeah. You never, um, you, you always have a, a different military at the end of a war that you have at the beginning. I mean, when I, I'm talking about high-intensity warfare. Mm -hmm. So I guess when it comes to Ukraine, and I, excuse me, excuse my, my, my um, historical vignettes that I threw in here. I didn't try to get off topic, but um, my whole point about this attrition versus uh, maneuver debate, um, um, in many ways, I don't find it that helpful. I think we need to deal with um, facts and the facts are that, that we, we as uh, you know, Western style militaries tend to face very, very uh, fire centric adversaries. Yep. Uh, adversaries that do employ um, attritional approaches, and we don't really have an answer to that. And that is something that worries me because the answers that we think we have are um, infused with um, maneuver, maneuverist ideas. And I think we don't have a plan B if these maneuverist ideas fail to really have that decisive effect on the future battlefield that some of us, or some at least of the military planners, force planners anticipate. Yeah, I just want to thank you for saying uh, Bewegvonskrieg. <laughs> I love that <laughs> word. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I can't say it. Uh, I took some German in high school, but uh, my German teacher uh, told me I wasn't very good, so I did two years and moved on. But I I love that word. So I, <laughs> I really appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, it's funny too, a couple, couple points or a couple comments on your points. I did a podcast, uh, earlier in this, uh, this series and I did it on the, the death of the Wehrmacht on uh, Robert Satino's book and some things that we could pull away from that as it relates to military thinking and military theory. Right. And so your, your, your last comments there were, were interesting about there being no plan B as it relates to what was said in Satino's book. He said that, uh, and I don't remember who, you know, who, who was quoted in this, but it was, uh, you know, essentially like what, what did the Germans do when they when the Blitzkrieg failed, they launched, they launched another Blitzkrieg, you know? And so you just keep throwing the same, cause you only have one mental model and you keep throwing that same mental model at the problem, expecting a different outcome. And so it's, uh, it's important to have a broader understanding. And I think your, your points on the phases of things, uh, it, it reminds me of the exchange theory that, that has to occur, right? You can't always go in and try and do one thing one way. Um, and Svechin, uh, Alexander Svechin in his book uh, that he published in the early uh, 20th century strategy, he, he essentially talks about what you're, what you're saying there. Uh, there is purposeful uh, attrition, which is sometimes done in an adjacent theater just to help chew up resources of an adversary. And that doesn't mean that attrition's stupid. In fact, you can make the case, uh, which I, I agree with, that in situations such as that, such as that, using attrition in that fashion is extremely uh, logical and has has a great de degree of validity. Uh, the other thing on that too that I wanted to comment on was that. Uh, it's, it's not something, it being maneuver, is not something you can just come out and do by fiat, right? You can't just come out and say, we're going to do a maneuver. And then this little maneuver fairy comes out and sprinkles maneuver on things and it goes, right? There are certain deterministic factors that 
must uh, be be factored into that. And one's terrain, you know. So you're talking about what you're talking about earlier. You've got, you know, let's say you've got a river to your back and you've got like one or two roads leading into your objective. And then off of those roads, it's densely wooded area, right? So the physical terrain and the environment uh, and your objective itself, those all determine what type of uh, fighting situationally which in the moment that you can do. Um, and so I think this is one of those things that's telescopic. You may big brush, you know, big broad brush stroke operationally say you're doing maneuver, but at the tactical level, as you zoom into that, uh, you may be doing uh, attritional fights all, all the way through. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with any of it. It's uh, it's all situationally dependent. Uh, and so I think a good point, since uh, we were briefly talking before we started here about the movie Napoleon, uh, a good point is, you know, and a good example of this is Napoleon's Austerlitz campaign, where there was, you know, he used uh, maneuver uh, out there and got uh, what was it, uh, Mac? It got them to surrender. Mac. Yeah, Mac. Got them to surrender out at the uh, I forget the name of the, the Black Forest, and then moved into Austerlitz and used positional warfare. Right, lured them in with positional warfare there around the Prats and Heights, and then went attritionally and just you know battered them. Uh, there to win that that you know classic battle and so i think that that's a really good example like if it works if it's good enough for napoleon it should be good enough for all of us um (laughs) but um Um. but yeah um so i'm gonna go ahead and transition off for a second and comment or ask you some questions here about uh this recent paper you had i love the fact that you uh you're so prolific and where and what you write but uh, i really enjoyed your uh why there are no game-changing weapons for Ukraine that was out in foreign policy recently. Uh, what do you mean when you say that? And do you, uh, if you would just uh, expand on that just a little bit. Sure. Um, and first of all, um, thanks for bringing up uh, Napoleon, uh, you know, in this podcast. Obviously, um, you know, T-18-5 campaign deserves to be studied. And um, in many ways, I agree with I agree with what you what you said about that cam- campaign, yeah. but again, it's also this phase between uh, maneuver versus attrition, and and obviously um, the real strength of the Napoleonic Revolution in warfare is not so much about firepower, right? It, it, it's more about force structure in yeah. many ways, yeah. and, and and mobility, introducing yep. a, a professional staff and mobility, yep. right? I mean, I don't want to minimize, uh, you know, that these things are, are quite quite important, but in in any case, I think um, you know. We have a different understanding uh, as a result of, of uh, you know, our ideas when it comes to maneuver or maneuver warfare in general. And I think these are often not really borne out by existing force structure, or at least, you know, we have an idolized version of, yeah. uh, m- m- uh, you know, this type of um, maneuver centric approach to warfare in our heads. And I think um, it could really hurt us down the road. I, I seriously think that um, when we face an enemy that's more uh, fire centric, yeah. or at least, you know, has a more, more attritional approach. Well, when it comes to my uh, foreign policy article on um, um, that there essentially are no Bundewaffen, right? To to use another German German <laughs> phrase here. I love it. It's, it's, so, it's so beautiful. So, so it's so good. <laughs> um, my my major point here is that again, I think every military is a product of its culture or you know in in general the society doesn't really say much about its combat effectiveness but it definitely serves something about its 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 military values at least to to some degree and i think in our western 
tech-obsessed society, we have a tendency to look for technological solutions as a panacea to a lot of our problems, right? I mean, it's sort of the, the silly valley conversation of our daily lives that's also swept over the, you know, to the military. And I think as a consequence, we are prone to just um, try to look for technological solutions mm -hmm. to, to very complex military problems. And I think this idea um, that, okay, well, it's the next weapon system, the next platform, um, the next number of weapon systems that can have a decisive impact on, on the battlefield and perhaps can change the fortunes of war. I think it's a mistake at the end of the day, right? Because um, you always have an adaption adaptation cycle yep. um whether it's bottom up or top down so any kind of uh introduction of a new weapon system if it's really um unique in some aspects in some you know of its technical perimeters uh you still create only a small window of opportunity where you can exploit essentially this particular system before your enemy adapts, right? Mm -hmm. There's a saying by the um, chief of the Reichswehr, um, the, the successor military of the Imperial German Army, uh, immediately following uh, Germany's defeat in the First World War, um, Hans von Seck, that, uh, you know, yep. that, that's the, 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 the you know, general, general colonel, right? General uh, Oberst, um, his rank. Um, and, and he said um, when he was discussing air power, or at least, you know, some of... Uh, the big discussion in the 1920s surrounding air power where people were worried that uh, it fundamentally will, will change. Um. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The character of warfare or perhaps even the nature of war as a whole um, he said, uh, you know, very succinctly, um, against every technological problem, there's a technological solution. And I do think that very amply summarizes the whole idea of a, a perpetual adaptation cycle, a certain dialectic that is prevalent in all sorts of um, military competitions and confrontations. And so um, I just wanted to point out in that particular piece in foreign policy that, yes, I understand we need to push certain weapon systems and have them delivered to Ukraine to certain things that we need to consider always, right? Yeah. Escalation. I mean, if you had asked me uh, two years ago that at some point you will see German made armor um, fighting off somewhere in the Donbass or, you know, somewhere near um, uh you know, uh, the Crimea, yeah. uh, you know, fighting, fighting against uh, Soviet armor. I, I think, you know, I would have probably called you crazy. The Germans would never do something like that. Send um, large platforms into an active war zone 
and um, it happened, right? Yep. And I'm, you know, so I do know why we need to have this debate and why we need to emphasize the, the virtues and capabilities of certain certain weapon systems, uh, whether it's the Leopard main battle tank or um, the Banzer Habitze 2000 self-propelled howitzer um, and so forth. But in reality, these systems are important, but they're not going to have a decisive impact. And I think that's what's important. Um, it's more about the sum and, and force employment, how these uh, weapon systems are actually deployed on the battlefield, how they're integrated, whether um, you can actually conduct a rudimentary form of combined arms warfare mm -hmm. with them where you integrate them. I mean, I always compare this to the game of rock, paper, scissors, right? Yep. Um, I mean, that's what it's, it essentially is. And you as an armor officer, obviously, are fully aware yeah. uh, about the intricate details of, 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 of uh, you know, combined arms operation, how difficult it is actually to pull off at scale, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think any European military would be capable of doing it. The only military that's really capable of, of, of pulling off uh, combined arms operations in a high-intensity operational environment is the United States, I would say, right? And so um, in that sense, very often I find uh, the debate uh, quite one-sided. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why I was I felt compelled to write this piece just to inform the public debate a little bit about about this idea that there are really no game changing weapons and that we need to um, perhaps lower our expectations with what individual weapons deliveries can accomplish. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, I'm going to a comment and then two additional comments. So just so you're aware, <laughs> there was a there was a time when I was uh, living at uh, Fort Bliss in El Paso and they had the uh, a V2 rocket out there outside the, uh, the the armor museum and it was really cool because it was like a real v2 rocket from uh, from Germany from the second world war that had been captured and brought out there and uh, you know talking about wonder weapons and whatnot the uh, and, and and that Fort Bliss El Paso area that's that's where we did a lot of uh, the US military did a lot of research into developing uh, our own one uh, wonder weapons if you will and it's fascinating if you drive around uh, El Paso. There's quite a quite a few German restaurants uh, in the city, and it struck me as odd until I did a bit more research on why that was the case. And it's because we imported a lot of uh, German scientists after the war to help develop those those long range weapons that we now like to use uh, quite a bit. But uh, so a comment on the force structure, I I I. I I think you're uh, spot on with that assessment. I think uh, in many cases, what you've seen today is force structure cut so far down to the bone that uh, you, it fails to acknowledge the realities of armed conflict, which is to your point earlier and throughout this conversation, really that war generally devolves. Uh, I don't even know if devolves is the right word, but quickly takes on the character of a, a war of attrition. And when you have force structures with extremely tight margins, right? small you know small battalion like what is it napoleon supposedly said god god fights on the side with the largest battalions you know but when you look at battalion force structures and western militaries today they're they're tiny and so the ability to take a punch and then continue fighting uh with with given force structures and in, in, in most western militaries is is very unlikely uh and then just to the uh building on that comment that you were making or the comment you're making about the there being no uh, no wonder weapons out there. The uh, it seems to me that there's this idea now that uh, strike and precision strike is almost taken um, taken a a level of um, 
it's taken on its own priority place in terms of if strategy. And so we no longer think about how to prosecute campaigns necessarily. It's how do we inject precision strike to strike one thing on the battlefield or a couple of things. And I think that the, we, we may be marching in the wrong direction as we think about strike as a strategy. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, uh, generally speaking. Oh, first of all, I think um, you you were uh, uh, thinking about Voltaire, right? Who said mm. that God is not on the side of uh, the big battalions, uh, but the better shots, or something like that. I've seen uh, several you know. different versions of that quote. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, at the end, in a war of attrition, you can make the argument yeah. that God usually is on the side of the bigger battalions, right. right? At the end of the day, um, although. You can obviously. I can see how you can use the quote also to support your um, maneuverist ideology, yeah. um, in 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 one way or the other. Right. Um, well, I think my problem with precision strikes in general, and it goes into some of the issues I have with uh, concepts such as, such as uh, joint all domain uh operations multi-domain operations and so forth yeah. and 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 you know uh the integration and synchronization of multiple warfighting domains uh, uh you know bringing together various capabilities uh, i forgot the phrase now that the u.s army is actually using oh convergent yeah. converging convergence yeah, yeah convergence yep. right convergence right yeah right big, I do big remember C, it's a noun or a verb or a noun <laughs> Right. It's both. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. The basic issue here is 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 that ultimately, in many ways, these sorts of things seem to me ends in themselves, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it's not immediately clear to me whether we have a, a good understanding. Uh, about first of all, um, what are we really trying to accomplish mm -hmm. <laughs> with this? What are our objectives here? Yep. Because I do think that um, precision strikes or the deep battle in general is sort of executed for its own sake in many ways. I mean, that's sort of the end goal when you look at some of the doctrine documents, right? I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of discussion about accelerated kill chains, closing you know, kill chains, kill webs. Um, targeting and it's really mostly about targeting at the end of the day yeah, right yeah. Uh, so it's very very tactical in many many ways and um what i miss sometimes is a more is a clearer understanding that uh, precision strikes or the deep battle in general is really only opening up windows of opportunity that's right for you and your force right yep. and these windows of opportunity need to be exploited and i think we sometimes do a bad job or not, not you know a less good job on the latter part than on the former right yeah. it's all about targeting deep battle long-range precision strikes um but it's much less so when it comes to um you know much less clear when it comes to the close battle and what sort of capabilities we need there um and it's not really reflected again um i keep on coming back to that in the force structure because um in one way, um, there's this idea that the deep battle solves a lot of the problems for our close fight. And I really don't think that's the case, right? Yeah. Particularly when you talk about op operations in urban terrain, which are more likely to not to occur in the future. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see how precision strike can really get us out of a fairly attritional contact, uh, contest in an urban environment, unless we are really so good at psychological warfare, information warfare, and so forth. Yeah that um, we can somehow convince the enemy not to resist. 
that's a large and tall proposition considering some of the ideologies though that western style militaries will likely be facing um down the road so um i wouldn't bet my money on that um so i think my issue is, is is really that that i think at the expense of precision strikes the deep battle we sometimes um, neglect the close battle mm -hmm. and i know that's a very you know, almost like sacrilegious thing to say and i do think the u.s army army's multi-domain operations doctrine has a lot of positives um, but there's also some point you know some elements that i think are worth criticizing and perhaps um improving uh, down the road yeah i think you're the the conversation you had with Peter Roberts a while ago on this means war when you talk about the the deep area I thought was a phenomenal uh, discussion. So uh, for anybody that's listening, go look go look up that podcast with uh, Franz and Peter Peter Roberts on this means war. It was really really good discussion on that. Um, so it, you know it's funny when we talk about this uh, targeting as a strategy approach and what's what's the goal, what's the purpose, what are you trying to achieve? It's uh even you know this morning there was a uh, a tweet from CENTCOM on their Twitter feed that said that they use discrete and precise strikes to, you know, blah, 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 essentially punitive strikes against uh, people that were attacking uh, U.S. bases um, there in Iraq and Syria. And th that's always the first thing that comes to my mind. Like, what are you trying to achieve with these strikes? You know, what is the bigger thing you're trying to achieve? Because it seems like it really is just a responsive uh, approach as opposed to like any sort of coherent strategy being employed. Uh, and then just real quick, the last thing on this, uh, on, on the precision strikes before we move on, cause I know we're getting close here on time, but the uh, you know, I was working in uh, Baghdad at the, in the headquarters there for the land component at the tail end of the battle of Mosul. And it was actually, it was after Mosul had culminated. And <clears throat> I was talking with a coalition partner, and we were talking about the battle itself, right? And we were like, man, the city's flattened, you know? Like, the, uh, And we were having this dialogue, and I was like, would it, would it have been cheaper and easier and quicker, perhaps, if we just had used you know, non-precise munitions to do this? Uh, because at the end of the day, the, the effect on the city and the people was the same, you know, precision or not. And that goes to your point on urban operations. But... He kept going, and this it was like cyclic in this conversation we were having. He said, "Yeah, but we used precision," and I'm like, "Dude, it doesn't matter. The city's still flattened. Like the 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 purported benefit of precision didn't deliver, you know." And then he would go, "Yeah, but we used precision," and it felt very much like that scene in uh, in um, Spinal Tap, you know, at the beginning where they're talking. Rob Reiner's talking to the guitar player. And right. he, he keeps saying, "Yeah, but the slam goes up to 11." And that's how I felt when I was talking to this guy about uh, precision strike and, and how it's used. And it really seems when you talk to people uh, in Western militaries, that seems to be a predominant way of thinking about it. It's almost it, it is an end unto itself. It doesn't matter what it did or didn't do and how well it did or didn't do it. It just, you know, hey, it was a precision strike. Well, my, my, my major question when you think about future great power war, and let's hope we are never going to face that as such a confrontation in our lifetime, of course. Mm -hmm. But I mean, my major question is really, what do we do if we run out or run low on precision guided munitions, right? Yeah. Which is a, a real possibility. If you look at um, 
you know, aim point in a Taiwan contingency, for example, mm -hmm. or even um, down the road, 10, 15 years, another, you know, European contingency potentially with a re, you know, re, you know, reemergent Russia. Um, you know, there are many different scenarios out there, but to me, if you look at what we have in stock. Um, I mean, there is a possibility that you run out after a couple of weeks, right? Yeah. So, what's your plan B there? Right. Um, if if you can't, you know, uh, if you can't think beyond that. So again, it comes back to my comment on force structure and 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 resourcing um, that force structure, right? Yeah. Um, that I made. Yeah, that at the I, beginning. I think it's uh, that also ties into the bigger the bigger discussion too of of strategy, military strategy in general, as you approach conflict. And it seems like the past I don't know twenty something years of uh, conflict that the the Western military has been engaged in. It's they they've forgotten to think holistically, and uh, they view everything in a very myopic lens. Like I've got to eliminate this target. Um, all right. So with that, uh, I think I've got two more things I'd like to ask you here. So the first is Crimea. How much of a uh, red line is Crimea for Russia? I can't really comment too much on the whole Crimea question because fundamentally, I don't think we quite know um, the red lines there. Um, it, at least we can't be certain. I do think it is the strategic high ground um, in this conflict, mm -hmm. so to speak. I think for the like, lack of a better word, and you know I don't like to use this phrase very often, but um, it is sort of a center of gravity <laughs> in, 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 there it in, is. in to some degree, right? <laughs> yes, I know, I know, I know. Um, and I'm trying to think of a, you know, another word for it. Let's just call it import, strategically important terrain. I've got right? a German word you ultimately, can use. I, I know, I can also <laughs> say, I can also say uh, Schwerpunkt. Yeah, 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 right. Absolutely. But um, I think we both discussed this uh, offline a few times already. Neither of us really believes that it's a very useful concept yep. um to 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 use in 21st century warfare or thinking about military campaigns in general but let's just say it's a it's a, it's a strategically significant piece of terrain yep. in this conflict okay um for multiple reasons one is political um but the other, other is really uh, you know it does have um significant um um, you know, a, a certain strategic significance for the Russian military uh, for its force posture and so forth. Um, so I do think down the road, losing uh, Crimea is something that definitely um, would raise um, escalation um, prospects. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a nuclear escalation. Yeah, I think a nuclear escalation in general is only likely if there's a severe deterioration of the military situation on the entire front line um, for Russia. So a real collapse of the Russian military effort in Ukraine as a whole, uh, perhaps with, with also some prospects of, um, um, you know, the regime in Moscow being threatened and so forth, but that's fairly speculative. I mm -hmm. think um, the important thing to understand about Crimea for Ukraine is that it's really the only or one of the few options left for Ukraine to to perhaps um, coerce Russia to the negotiation table, right? Yeah. That is by exerting pressure or making um, the cost of uh, c continuing to occupy 
Crimea unbearable for Russia, thereby forcing it to the negotiation table. I think that could potentially be um, one idea how perhaps Ukrainian leadership is thinking about uh, Crimea. Yeah. Having said that, I think it's extremely difficult, or it would be extremely difficult for the Ukrainians um, to accomplish this. It's really not a cakewalk, right? Uh, I mean, sure. to continually exert pressure on Crimea. It's fairly well defended. It has extensive air and missile defense systems uh, and that, you know, a network that is, is quite formidable. And um, it is actually filled with troops, right? It has, uh, uh, you know, it's this idea of making Crimea untenable for um, the Russians. I think it's, it's, it's much harder done than said, right? Mm-hmm. Um, much easier said than done and so i uh, you know obviously crimea is, is is fairly important i suspect that we will see more um news from uh, crimea over the next couple of months but when it comes to specific red lines it's very hard for me to answer that question yeah that's fair all right last question here um before we close out what is the uh, what is your what is your assessment of the worst hot take floating around right now, either about or both, I guess, about the Russia-Ukrainian war and then just within military thinking in general? Well, I mean, some of that, you know, bad takes out there about armor being obsolete on the battlefield. <laughs> I think it's definitely something that keeps on annoying me personally. Yeah. Also, there are some people who claim that the original made the argument and then sort of disavowed that they actually have made that <laughs> argument, which I find yeah. also quite intellect from an intellectual perspective interesting. Oh, yeah. um, so every single time we are in Ukraine, I do think we leave the country with um, a new sense that armor, that there's a place for armor and that there is no substitute. Um, mm for mechanized forces or um, armored vehicles in terms of firepower, um, protection, and um, speed on the battlefield, right? And until there's an alternative or another platform that can combine firepower, um, armor, and um, speed, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's really no alternative to using armored vehicles. And when you talk to Ukrainian soldiers, near the front line, it's very obvious that one of the things that they require most or really would like to have more of is protected mobility, yeah. whether it's armored personnel carriers, infantry uh, fighting vehicles, or main battle tank tanks. So that's one b- bad take, I think, that I, I keeps on popping up, and I'm, I'm really sort of tired of the debate. I think another um, bad take in general is... Um, well, I mean, I, I say it. I mean, this idea by some commentators and and people who really support Ukraine that Ukraine can't do any wrong on the battlefield, mm, yeah. right? That um, I think, and I mean, perhaps that's a bit of a controversial point to make, but I do think it's critical that Ukraine is doing its own um, after-action analysis, objective after-action analysis, and is really honest about its failures and also its successes, right? And what yeah. it can do better, where it needs to improve, and um, how it really can improve its military performance overall. Because there are some things that the Ukrainians have done exceptionally well, 
And then there were other things that have done less well. And I think brushing aside criticism on occasion of the Ukrainian armed forces, um, it's 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 a mistake, right? Because mm-hmm. it's very counterproductive at the end of the day to just, for example, blame the West um, or Western supporters of you know delivering certain platforms late or not delivering certain weapon systems, not delivering enough ammo, ammo ammunition. These are all very valid points of criticism. But to exclusively blame the West for, um, um, you know, the lack of military success on certain fronts, you know, parts of the front line, I think we need to go deeper than that. We need to be more nuanced and we need to be much more um, comprehensive in uh, how we approach this entire situation in Ukraine from a military perspective because only if we are able to learn and objectively assess what we did right and wrong not just um you know as western partners but also you know uh, the ukrainian armed forces then i think we have a much bigger chance of success in this conflict than um with just brushing it aside yeah that's uh i think that's a perfect place to stop so uh Friends, thank you very much uh, for your uh, participation today. Um, as we're closing out here, is there any projects or anything that you're working on that you'd like to uh, to mention before we, we close out here? Oh, well, um, thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity here. Well, there are, there are two short projects um, that I would like to mention. First off, uh, I'm, I'm doing another article with Michael Kaufman mm-hmm. on this whole debate surrounding uh, attrition and maneuver and perhaps go a little bit more into the doctrinal doctrinal debate um, surrounding attrition and maneuver and what sort of lessons we can learn from Ukraine. Uh, the other uh, work that I am uh, continue to work on um, and that I would like to plug here is is my upcoming book on mm-hmm. um, um, the U.S. Armed Forces and um, potential military campaign against China um, in the late 2030s in East Asia where I look at future force structure, weapon systems, uh, technologies, and uh, future doctrine and what sort of um, approaches make sense and what I personally think makes less sense for the U.S. armed forces to pursue. And I know you've read some of that. And uh, thanks again for for giving me your thoughts on on my draft. Mm -hmm. But in any case, these are two things that will come out in the next couple of months. All right. Well, I look forward to that. And if you get the – or whenever you get the – the information on either of those, uh, the, the, the article and the book, send it to me and I'll get it in the show notes too. So that's there. Uh, so with a, depending on whenever anybody listens to this episode, that information will be available and then go find that, the, the article and the book. Um, so with that, thank you again for your time and uh, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you.